0: The Bible certainly calls us to come to the conclusion that God is good, to come to the conclusion that He is trustworthy, and that everything is going to work out in accordance with His plan. At the same time, the Bible also helps us to see that there's a a means by which we get there, or a language that moves us along between sort of the pull of, my life is really hard, and I trust in God's sovereignty.
1: Welcome to The Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Mark Vrogop. Mark serves as lead pastor at College Park Church in Indianapolis, Indiana. He's a council member for the Gospel Coalition, and he's the author of a new book with Crossway, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. Today, Mark and I discuss his own journey through sorrow, when he and his wife lost their daughter, Sylvia, just days before her due date. He then goes on to share how God used that tragedy to awaken him and ultimately his whole church to the grace of lament, a faith-filled yet honest way of relating to our pain that we find illustrated right within our Bibles. Let's get started. Mark, thank you so much for being with us on the Crossway Podcast today. It's great to be with you today. So in 2004, you and your wife experienced something incredibly painful, probably one of the most painful experiences uh, a person can imagine. Can you share a little bit about what happened?
0: Yeah, my wife woke me up early one morning. Uh, she was nine months pregnant, and she said, uh, Mark, I think something's wrong with our our pregnancy. We had had multiple um, children, three that had been born uh, prior to that time, and nothing had ever gone wrong. And... Um, so this was a shock. and um, to make a long story short, uh, after a visit with a doctor, uh, determined that our nine month in utero uh, baby had uh, had died. Hmm. and my wife my wife gave birth to our stillborn daughter, uh, Sylvia, on uh, February seventeenth, two thousand and four. And that began uh, a lengthy process of uh, grieving. Um, years after that, we had multiple miscarriages. Uh, Something called a blighted ovum, which is a false positive pregnancy, and uh, the Lord put us into a season where we learned how to uh, trust the Lord and also what it means to really grieve deeply.
1: Hmm. And and what was the first thought that you had when you heard the news about your daughter from the doctor?
0: You know, there's what's crazy about it is there's so many thoughts that run through your heart at the exact same time, and um, you know the hymn writer says sorrows like sea billows roll, and they. Um, so there were there were thoughts of just, I can't believe this has happened. Um, uh, I can't believe my wife has to give birth to a dead child. Um, I feared would she be ever happy again? Would God give us any other children? Uh, how do I pastor a church? How do I preach on Sundays? Like It's just like a barrage. How, how am I going to explain this to my kids who were little that they're a baby in mom's tummy had passed away, and just the uncertainty of what our future looked like was uh, was unbelievable. I, I had never experienced uh, grief at that level. It was um, it was frightening because of the depth of it and the strength of it. And so um, it, it was just a, a a moment that I'll never forget of realizing everything about our life is just radically changed, and yet we knew God was good. And yet we also were really, really scared. And those two emotions uh, just coexisted in our heart at the exact same time.
1: So as a pastor, I'm sure there have been many situations uh, where you've walked alongside a family or an individual dealing with some kind of tragedy or pain. Was there anything surprising to you as you entered into your own season of tragedy that maybe you weren't expecting?
0: Yeah, as a pastor, you know, you have a, a well-developed uh, theology of suffering, believing confidently in God's sovereignty. I mean, I I know the texts, I've preached them, and, and they were true and rang true in our hearts during that day. And yet, um, being in the middle of that crucible of suffering and hardship, it takes those things that you believe, and it adds uh, emotional pain and trauma along with them such that your uh, I was fighting to believe what I knew I believed and uh, believing that God is good, uh, knowing that hard is not bad. and yet the reality was hard was really, really hard. And I think the the, the lesson that came out of that for me long term, was that those two things are equally true. Hard is not bad, but hard is really hard. And going through that season of deep suffering helped me to know how valuable it is to acknowledge that hard is really hard, while at the same time acknowledging that hard is not bad because of God's goodness and His sovereign
1: plan. Unpack that a little bit. Why is hard not always a bad thing?
0: Well, we know that scriptures tell us that all things work together for our good. We know that God has purposes beyond what we can see. Uh, Job says, I heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. And um, so suffering has a way of um, clarifying not only what we believe, but also helping us to put our confidence, um, practical confidence in knowing that somehow God's going to work all of this out. And, you know, as I look back on my own life, I can I can see The way that the Lord used the death of our daughter in 2004 for really good purposes, Um, and uh, now I I wish she was alive. I wish that wasn't what God has chosen for us. But I can see uh, how shaping it was. I can see some of the fruit, and yet there's probably ten thousand things that God has done through that experience uh, for our good and for the good of His name that I don't even know about. And so, believing that hard is not bad is a fundamental um, theological Christian gospel-centered commitment that God has plans for me, and and no matter what takes place, uh, those plans always fit with his good grace uh, toward me. And the cross being the greatest example of that. Good Friday looked like a disaster until Resurrection Sunday happened, and then, wow, now we understand what God was really doing.
1: Yeah, in your book you talk about the journey that you took in learning to value lament, which is is sort of what we're talking about right now. And, and you actually write that the Bible gave voice to your pain. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, what many people don't know is that a third of the Psalms are laments. So one out of every three Psalm wrestles with really hard questions and hard uh, issues. And um, for example, Psalm 13, one of my favorite Psalms says, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And the reality is, is that if a person is a follower of Jesus and they walk through suffering, they wonder that question. When, when hardship comes, there are days when you wake up and you feel, God, have you forgotten me? Have you, have you hidden your face from me? Or um, Psalm 77 would be another uh, great example where the psalmist asks six rhetorical very pointed questions. And uh, just a few of them, will the Lord spurn forever? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises, have they come to an end at all time? So I just found that that the Bible suddenly gave me inspired words to actually talk to God about the struggles within my own soul, while at the same time believing that he was going to work this out for my good Yet the, the, the challenge of what I felt was was really, really hard. And so the Bible gave voice to the fact that there are two things that happen in suffering. I, I believe that God is good, but yet this is really hard. And lament is the language um, of what you pray when you're in pain that leads you to the point of trust.
1: Yeah, I'd imagine that a lot of Christians, and I would consider myself in this category, sometimes struggle to understand and really grasp what it is the Psalms of Lament are doing and relate them to other passages of Scripture, like Romans 8, for example, where Paul is expressing this, such confidence in God's goodness and his plan, his sovereignty over all things. Um, How do we bring those two types of passages together in our own thinking?
0: Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that... um, the Bible certainly calls us to come to the conclusion that God is good, to come to the conclusion that he is trustworthy, and that everything is going to work out in accordance with his plan. At the same time, the Bible also helps us to see that there's a, a means by which we get to the, get there, or a language that moves us along between sort of the pull of my life is really hard and I trust in God's sovereignty. So, for instance, even in, in Romans 8, What many people don't realize is that right before Paul says, you know, we are more than conquerors, he quotes a lament psalm. He says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're being regarded as sheep to the slaughter. Uh, People don't realize that when Jesus hung on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoted Psalm 22, a lament psalm. And what laments do is they're the language that moves us through our pain, laying out our complaints, asking God for help. And then ending in trust. And so there's there's a typical pattern. It goes uh, turn, turn to God in prayer, lay out your complaints, ask him for help, and then choose to trust. And uh, laments are the language that move us uh, along uh, the, the pathway of our grief. Um, you know, No one would argue that we need to rejoice always. I Absolutely, we need to rejoice. That's not the question. The question is, how do you get to the point that you can rejoice? And laments are the language of God's people that move them to get to the point where they can sing because God has dealt bountifully with them. And that's what Psalm 13 does. It starts with complaint, asks God for help, and then concludes, so I will sing. And I just find that many Christians know they should land in trust. They know they should be thankful. They know they should rejoice. Um, But asking somebody who's in pain or telling them, you just need to rejoice without giving them a language that moves them there, In many cases, is not just unhelpful. It actually causes them to wonder if what they're supposed to believe at the end is even in fact true, because they don't
1: know what to do with the emotions that they presently feel. So, why do you think it is that so many Christians are unfamiliar and maybe even uncomfortable with the idea of lament?
0: You know, there's lots of reasons. Um, I'll just maybe give a few. I think that. our understanding of suffering, and for most of us in in 21st century American culture, is conditioned by our uh, experience and our expectation of what life should be. So there's always sort of this, you know, a, a new day dawning, a bright day ahead, optimism and things of that sort. And not, not many of us know what it's like to live in an environment where a recession doesn't go away. Or... Poverty is going to be a part of your experience for a long, long time, or um, an ongoing illness is, is not going to be healed anytime soon. Um, and so for the most part, um, 21st century American evangelicals, especially within white evangelicalism, know how to do triumph and triumphalism really well. But we don't know what it's like to, to linger in, in long-term uh, difficulty. And so many, in many respects, both our sermons, our singing especially, um, doesn't reflect this particular language. Now, if you looked at other parts of the world, if you were to uh, talk with our African-American brothers and sisters, they, they understand lament as a category. Um, in a much more prolific um, and uh, in, in specific ways than 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 the rest of us, and so I, I think there's just a there's a there's an Achilles heel regarding kind of where the church has has moved um, in the last 100 to 250 years, especially in the United States. That lament is just a lost language that I think needs to be recovered.
1: Yeah, in your book, you talk about how as God was taking you on a journey to discover the grace of lament, you started to teach about it in your church. What happened as you started to talk more and more about what God was showing you in his word? Yeah, they
0: um, came out of the woodwork. It was like people were like, finally, uh, somebody has identified for me what's been going on in my soul. It it gave them a sense of, of hope. That there was a language that um, spoke to their their heart language. It's sort of like when you when you hear a song that just resonates with you because it speaks what you feel, but you didn't have words or didn't have melody for it. It just it touches you so deeply. And 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 that started to happen um, as as people just began to identify with this this concept of lament being a prayer in pain that leads. Uh, to trust. It created some great healing opportunities for people who had long-term um, struggles with uh, suffering or pain. And and invariably, lament, as I taught on it, explained kind of what they've walked through. The funny thing about lament is that very few of us set out to study it. We sort of back into it. And then when you're there, you're like, oh, this is what's been happening um, in my life. Um, the other thing is that it helped us to... Um, to tune our hearts uh, more effectively towards the suffering around us. So we spent some time in the book of Lamentations, um, the longest lament in the Bible that's written over the destruction of Jerusalem, um, to be able to lament some of the um, social and and um, societal issues uh, that uh, were right in our backyard, whether it's a opioid crisis or sex trafficking or abortion or... Um, a racial incident. And it gives us a language to help interpret what's going on with the world. And so in that respect, it was ex- extremely helpful by reminding our people that hey, Christians know the arc of God's redemption plan. We, we know what's wrong with the world. So whether it's personal suffering or whether it's societal suffering, we ought to be able to speak into it with a language that um, not only has been given by God, but also is able to give us
1: a lot of grace. What practical advice would you offer to maybe the pastor who's listening right now who wants to help his people to better understand and appreciate the value of lament?
0: Well, I think one thing um, would be just to take a look at the um, particular psalms that are uh, there and preach on them and um, begin just to let the, the text drive some of the um, statements and the themes, um, have the tone of the sermon fit the tone of the text. Um, that's one way. Um, I think another way would be to pray more regularly pastoral prayers that feature uh, lament or lament content in it, to either lament over our sins in a time of confession or to lament over some um, thing that's in the news uh, over the over the last week. Um, and then also, just to help people know that there's a there's a category of of pain and and or a category of language that helps us to address pain, um, and by just identifying that that's there, that that's just a first step in helping people know uh, what what to do when the bottom drops out. Because eventually, I mean, everyone's going to face suffering at some point in their lifetime, and lament should not be an unfamiliar language. And I think helping people know that in advance um, is is really helpful. And then finally, just you know, it's amazing to me how many funerals have have very little lament in it. It's just sort of like here's a great opportunity for us to be honest about how we feel, and yet we're for whatever reason um, we make them celebrations of life. And I'm not against that concept or that term, but funerals are meant to be instructive, and they're meant to help us to deal with the pain that we have and also point us towards hope and truth. And yet I find that, that many pastors, for whatever reason, are nervous about being too sad. And as a result, they're just not sad at all in the context of a funeral, which is really hard if you're there and you are sad. And you're like, man, am I am I not a follower of Jesus because I'm, I'm kind of struggling with this? So I think just, there's a holistic picture, I think, our definition and our, our theology of suffering needs to be more theological, not just theological, rather. It also needs to understand our, the theology of our emotions as it relates to lament.
1: Do you think there's an implicit pressure in the church to hide our sorrow?
0: Mm, that's a great question. And the answer is yes. I, I think there's two ditches that I have found that people fall into, ditches that I was tempted to fall into. Um, the one ditch is um, despair. There's no hope that nothing's ever going to be good again. There's another ditch, though far more common, which is denial. Uh, I'm fine. Everything's good. So we go to church and you know we have these uh, greetings that we say to one another. And um, As a result, we were we're not honest with what's really going on. And if somebody in a greeting time, if you were to say, hey, man, how you doing? Oh, not good, man. I just, you know, wrestling with um, a lot of pain this week. Most people would not know what to do with that. Um, And as a result, uh, church can be a very lonely place for those who are hurting. And I think also we miss an opportunity to really apply the gospel in a robust way to people who are walking through the darkest of dark moments.
1: Yeah, as you think back on your own period of intense suffering and mourning, were there things that other Christians said that uh, that you found maybe not very helpful, or in some cases even hurtful?
0: Yeah, it, you know, and I want to be careful, just because these folks meant well. I mean, they did, and they were just they were trying the best as they could. And again, it was just like they, like when you're trying to speak a foreign language and you're not very good at it, at least you're trying, and so. Um, but some people, you know, they tried to assign um, uh, they, they tried to assign uh, purpose to our loss, you know, and uh, things that were, you know, we we certainly certainly would hope that somebody would come to faith in Christ because of our loss. But when you're grieving. And somebody says, you know, maybe more people will come to Jesus because of this. That's true, but it's just—it's just not helpful um, in that uh, in that moment. Or, well, maybe you know, you know, you had three kids. I'm sure the Lord's going to give you another baby. Well, y- yeah, we we certainly would hope that. But that is such a deep fear to have somebody um, unintentionally kind of trivialize that is uh, is really is really hard. Um, I think though the, the the most painful thing is what we are just so tempted to do, which is to try and comfort people by some sort of association with our own suffering, and so we we, we too closely link um, we, our own experience so that we can tell them that we understand. And for some reason, we're we're afraid to say, "I'm sorry," and I don't know what to say. And actually, that's the right thing to say. Um, in fact. You know, there, there was a friend of ours who had lost a child—not um, a stillbirth, but older—and literally in the receiving line at the funeral home, uh, somebody told them this. They said, "Hey, we're really sorry. We know how you feel." And the grieving couple said, "You do." And they said, "Yeah, you know, our dog died last week, and we're just really sad." And it just devastated the family. And the, the you know, you just would want to say to people, "Shh." Don't, don't, just just say you're sorry and you're praying for them and hug on them and say less, less, less is more.
1: Yeah, I've noticed that in myself even, just that sometimes there can be this natural impulse to try to connect and uh, express some kind of empathy and understanding for someone who is in the midst of such pain and grief. Uh, why is it that we, we can struggle to know how to engage with people
0: yeah, I think two reasons. One, I think there's a genuine desire to want to help. And so I think that's commendable. I mean, people want to help other people in their in their grieving, uh, and they just don't know what to say. Um, the second thing I think is that grief in somebody else's life is scary. Um, I mean, I, I, I've studied this, I know this, um, but you know, I had a friend recently that was deeply, deeply grieving um, in the midst of a prayer time and just wailing before the Lord with enormous amounts of uh, sorrow. And his grief um, created fear within my heart. Like Like it was just a crazy thing. Like I know what's going on. I got categories for this. I know how to even help him intellectually, but emotionally, I wanted him to stop. I wanted him to stop being that sad. And his that level of sorrow, I think just at a deep, deep level, it, it shakes us as human beings at our core because it just screams something's wrong with the world. And in the same way that a funeral is a reminder of the penalty of sin, so too sorrow is a reminder that life is really broken. And um, of course, we know the answer and the hope that we have in Christ, but those moments, I think, shake us and and they're designed to. And so I think people are, are, are scared. They don't know what to say. And As a result, um, they just don't have a language uh, that can help people when they're walking through um, deep seasons of
1: lament. What practical advice would you offer to the individual or maybe the small group as they seek to bring some of these principles and even some of the language that you're explaining here related to lament uh, to bear on their own experiences of pain and sorrow and suffering as they seek to support people who are in the midst of really grieving for something. I
0: think that they need to be sure that when somebody in their group is really struggling deeply, that they just simply sit with them in their pain and love on them and pray with them um, and join them in their sorrow and not move into the typical fix it um, or give advice or um, you, you could pray the promises of God over them, um, but it's um, hard when you're grieving uh, and people are suddenly moving into to solution mode. The other thing I think you can do, and I've done this personally with folks who've grieving, who are grieving and I've done it myself, is to take a, a lament psalm and just to kind of pick it apart using that fourfold uh, structure that I mentioned before of, Turn. Here's the the psalmist is praying to God. So instead of being silent, he's talking to God. Complain. Where are the complaints in this text? What do we to ask God for? Uh, and then finally, where do we see kind of turning to to trust? And it's seen great help when people sort of study a psalm through that lens and then write their own. Um, so what would my psalm of lament look like? What would it look like for me to turn to God? What would I say to Him in the midst of my pain? What complaint? would I offer to God, what what do I want to ask Him to do in light of His promises, and then what recommitment of trust can I make? And when people see it through the Psalms and then pray it, um, it's really helpful. It kind of gives like like tracks uh, that they can move their pain along, but also creates some great moments of people being able to be honest and to care for one another um, in a way that, that that ends in resolution towards trust, uh, but also
1: really cares for one another in a really deep way. Hmm. You write in your book that lament helps us to unearth our idols. What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, suffering of any kind um, really shows you who you are. When you when you get stripped back, um, you uh, you see what was there. Uh, John Piper talks about suffering as um, a moment when your beaker is bumped. Like so, imagine our lives like a a beaker with a clear solution, but sediment down there. And, you know, over time the sediment just kind of remains hidden, but when you're bumped with suffering, uh, the, the, what, what was there, your self-sufficiency, the idols that you have, uh, those can surface. But here's the problem. It's pretty hard to confront a suffering person because they kind of have the ultimate pass, you know, they get out of jail card, jail free card, um, so to speak. And so it's important for suffering people to realize that, um, hardship can, can surface what we, um, we trust in. So a practical level, when my wife was walking through the grief of the loss of our daughter, you know, there was a part of her heart that I couldn't fix. Uh, no matter what I did, I couldn't end her sorrow. And one of the things the Lord showed me through that is that, boy, my, my idol of being able to fix things was really surfaced when I faced a grief in her soul that I couldn't fix. And so that's just one example of you know any kinds of idols that can surface or whether our idol is uh, is is money in a, in a job loss or an uncertain economy uh, suddenly surfaces that or our dreams of what our life would would be like um, uh, you know we had to wrestle with, what if we can't get pregnant again? And with multiple miscarriages and then a false positive pregnancy, we had to sort of release that desire to the Lord um, and realizing that that was um, a pretty important desire on our part and not a bad desire, but if that becomes ultimate, then it's an idol. And so we had to release that um, to the Lord. So suffering of any kind has an opportunity, if we'll allow it to, to identify the things that we can place too much trust
1: in. What would you say are some of the dangers that we can often face in the midst of deep suffering? Oh, man, there's so many um, potential
0: dangers um, and pitfalls. I mentioned you know, too earlier, the pit of despair. there's no hope or denial. everything's fine, so you fake it or you just kind of throw in the towel. Um, uh, sorrow can also make you really self-centered. Um, it can it can create a situation where because of your pain, you, you just could justify um, only being concerned about yourself. Uh, you're in survival mode, and so you can be uh, insensitive to other people, unkind. Um, you know, sorrow has the, uh, the, the, the possibility of um, making you um, and just kind of showing you who you, um, who you are, and that can be a, a difficult and a challenging um, picture for sure. Um, you know, suffering also can be um, the kind of thing that 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 makes you arrogant because you you think either that nobody else understands or you begin projecting your experience on on everybody else, and um, it could also cause you to uh, begin to question things that you used to believe in. Um, is God really good? Is the Bible really the word of God? Um, when your expectations in life collide with with what has happened to you. So there's there's a lot of ditches and a lot of landmines um, that uh, that are there. And yet the hope is that God can help navigate us through them. And language, the language of lament is one of the gifts that he gives us for making our way through that
1: messy terrain. There may be somebody listening to us right now who, for various reasons, is in the midst of a season of deep sorrow. Uh, maybe they've recently lost somebody dear to them. Uh, Maybe someone else that they love, or maybe they themselves are suffering with some kind of illness or disease. Um, Maybe there's a strained or broken relationship that uh, just there doesn't seem to be much hope for the future. What would you say to that person? What encouragement would you offer that person when it comes to discovering the grace of lament for themselves?
0: You know, my encouragement would be that Jesus is the man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He he lived among us so that we would know that when we come to him with our pain, that we have a Savior who understands. And Jesus lamented. Um, he he poured out his grief in the Garden of Gethsemane. He talked to God about his pain while he was even on the cross. And um there's an opportunity for us to come to the Man of Sorrows, and the Bible gives us a language that can help us to get there. We can talk to God instead of giving Him the silent treatment. We can lay out what our really strong emotions are, and God knows that they're there. We can complain to Him. We can we can ask Him to to help us based upon His promises, and we can then land in trust, realizing that that isn't just something you do once. It's something that you do in all different seasons of life and during the various seasons of, of, of suffering. And so my encouragement would be this, that hope for the follower of Jesus springs as truth is rehearsed. And as you rehearse the truth of the word using lament to do it. That's how you make it one day at a time, knowing that God's going to give you grace for everything you face every day. And lament just happens to be a conduit whereby God supplies that grace. Lament helps us to not give up, It's the language that we use when we live in the land between this is really hard and God is good. And those two things exist. Lament is how we make it through the difficulties
1: that God's allowed us to experience. Mark, thank you for taking some time to talk with us today and for sharing a little bit of your own story, your own journey to discover the grace of lament. We appreciate it.
0: it It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so
1: much for the opportunity. That was Mark Vrogop, sharing his own story of experiencing God's grace in the midst of deep sorrow. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show.